God, we have prayed, speak, O Lord, and we thank you that you do, that you speak to us through your word, that you tell us everything we need to know for salvation, for life, for godliness, for facing the challenges of Monday. We've been blessed these past weeks in your word from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And as we review some of that rich material today, may it penetrate deeply and impact us for our good and your glory. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, yesterday afternoon, we had a memorial service here for one of the happiest, most joy-filled people that I've ever known, uh, Russell Irwin, a number of you were here. And as I was simultaneously preparing this week to do the funeral on Saturday and preparing to preach here on Sunday morning, uh, I began to realize how the, the two preparations were fitting together. No, I did not preach from Philippians yesterday, but uh, as I thought about Russ's life and his impact and how he lived, I realized that he lived a Philippians life, and that began to impact how I was thinking about today. What is the focus of Philippians? Now, my friends, that's a kindergarten answer. It's really easy. Jesus. He's the focus of Philippians. Well, every one of Paul's letters has that focus of Jesus. So let me ask it another way. Kindergartners might have trouble with this next one. What is a unique focus? What's, what's unique about Philippians? What's a special focus in Philippians? Well, the theme that we followed in this series has been light in the darkness, uh, drawing from Philippians 2.15, among whom you shine as lights in the world, and that's how Russ Irwin, in his 91 years on earth, uh, lived his life, a shining light of the gospel. But what makes that light obvious to the world, to those around us, as we shine the light of the gospel? What makes it obvious to the world? Philippians has often been called the epistle of joy. And if you will Google epistle of joy, the first 20 or 25 things that come up will be a blog post or a sermon or a Bible study about Philippians. Now, epistle is an archaic word for letter. And I think many of you knew that, but this is a letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. And the most concentrated usage in the New Testament of the word joy, the noun joy, or the verb rejoice, most concentrated use of that concept, of that word, those words, is in Philippians, found in every chapter of this book. So, I have these written out in front of me. Uh, but you have your Bible open to Philippians chapter 1, so I'm going to call out the chapter and number of the verse, and I want you to see, we're going to read the whole book in about 45 seconds uh, as uh, 
it would take 15 minutes if we actually read the whole book. We thought about doing that today, decided not to. But we're going to read the whole book with the focus on joy. So you just track with me as quickly as you can. Philippians 1, 4, making my prayer with joy. 118, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. 125, your progress and joy in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Verse 17, even if I am poured out as a drink offering, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Verse 18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 28, regarding Epaphroditus, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. 29, rejoice uh, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers whom I long, uh, who I love and long for, my joy and crown. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And 4.10, I rejoiced in the Lord that you revived your concern for me. God's people are to be a happy people, a joy-filled people. Not to negate the reality of heartache and suffering and grief and the difficulties and challenges of living in a world that rejects us and our beliefs. We're not immune from problems. We have all of those problems, but our grief even, our sorrows even, are different because of Jesus. And I've just observed that my brother Russ uh, modeled Philippians joy as much as anyone I know, I've known, and it wasn't a joy that denied reality, but it was real, it was infectious, and so I want to know I think people that knew him would want to know what's behind that. What's the cause of such happiness? What causes Philippians joy? And I want to point out three factors today. Uh, they've also sustained me over the past 57 and a half years since I first trusted in Jesus, even though I'm a much more melancholy personality than Russ Irwin was. But it's the primary impact on him, on me, on anyone who looks to Jesus. So here's my effort to fulfill my assignment to preach all of Philippians in one message. They took about 16 hours. I have 35 minutes or a little more. We'll see. The joy of knowing Christ. About two-thirds of the message is going to be that. The joy of knowing Christ. The joy of serving Christ. And the joy of being with Christ in life, in death, and beyond. So that looks like a straightforward three-point sermon outline, the joy of knowing Christ, serving Christ, being with Christ. And I hope to cover all of that, but we're going to be kind of meandering through Philippians, uh, not going from left to right, but kind of going here and there and everywhere, and I hope you'll be able to stay with me. 
I uh, just want to remind you, even though we've already covered this over the last three months, I want to remind you and hopefully help you see how it all ties together in a beautiful tapestry of God's grace. Well, first, the joy of knowing Christ. Now, it, it should be obvious, I suppose, but this theme of joy and rejoicing can't be separated from another dominant theme in Philippians that... Uh, is particularly represented by a little uh, two-word uh, phrase, in Christ, about ten times. Uh, so Philippian joy can't be found apart from Jesus. Paul wants to make sure his readers know who Jesus is, why he came, what he did, and the difference he makes. So let's jump right into the heart of Philippians in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul is calling the church to love and unity after the example of Jesus... And so verse 5, have this mind among yourselves or attitude which is yours in Christ Jesus or in your relationship with one another, have this mindset as of Jesus Christ. So it keeps coming back to Jesus. So who's he? Why is he the focus? Uh, so we have to start with the person and work of Jesus. Uh, Paul defines the essence of who Jesus is and why he came into this world in this amazing section, uh, verses 6 through 9. Who is Jesus? Uh, who, though he was in the form of God, or who being in very nature God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, but, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In these four verses... Uh, what many consider one of the first hymns of the church, Paul lays out the essentials of the gospel. That is, who Jesus is, why he came, what he did, and so what do we learn about Jesus here? Number one, he is God. He is God from eternity past. One with the Father and the Holy Spirit, a triunity of three persons, one God from forever. This is how Jesus is identified in the four gospel accounts of his life and ministry. That's how he identified himself over and over again. I've been reading through uh, the Gospel of John with my granddaughter recently, and, and uh, we've, I've delighted in just pointing this out to her as we've gone through these chapter by chapter. I and the Father are one. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, 2,000 years before he said this, before Abraham was born, I am, identifying himself clearly as the God who revealed himself to Moses. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And on and on, Jesus clearly identifies himself as God. That's what the early church understood to be true about him. Earliest creeds make this clear. And Paul speaks of Jesus that way through his letters, saying 
it this way here, though he was in the form of God, though being in very nature God, which leads then into what follows when we talk about Jesus here, though, we are talking about God. Then number two, he became man at the incarnation. Verse 6, because he was in very nature, God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to be used to his advantage, something to be exploited. And so this is not Zeus making a mockery of man or Poseidon taking petty vengeance on man or uh, Athena deceptively appearing as a man for her own pet reasons, including to deceive the other gods. Athena loves to appear as a human. But no, this is Jesus who is truly God, takes on the humiliation of humanity at great cost to himself, taking the role of a humble servant, and he became one of us for our good at great cost to himself. Now this is astounding news. By the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit, God the Son was conceived in the womb of a humble girl from Nazareth in Galilee, a virgin named Mary, and thus taking on humanity. Now be sure you understand this. This is, this is not half God and half man. This is fully God from eternity past who becomes fully man in time in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He became fully human as he took on human flesh. And guess what next Sunday is? First Sunday of Advent. Celebrating this event of God incarnate, enfleshment, God becoming man as we lead up to Christmas. But then Paul not only covers Christmas in these four verses, but he takes us up to the events leading right up to Easter. And so first Paul tells us that Jesus is God, and then he tells us that Jesus became man, taking on the limitation of, some, of humanity, but not surrendering his deity. So he's fully God, fully man. Make sure you get that. But why? Why did he do that? Why did he become man? Well, he came to suffer and die. Verse 8, and being found in human form and appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, and that's indeed what happened. Read the four Gospels, not just once. Read them over and over again. Just get the flow and the feel of who Jesus is and why he came. And in all four Gospels, the primary accounts of Jesus' life on earth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them clearly show the trajectory of Jesus toward the cross. He sets his face toward Jerusalem to go to the cross, to die there. And these truths build then to a great climax. Why did Jesus come to provide for our great need of a Savior? Why did Jesus become a man? So that he'd have a body to be punished, to be hurt, to suffer, to die. And then, verses 9 through 11, he was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven in the highest place. Now, in this poetic presentation, in this hymn in Philippians, the, the resurrection of Jesus is not explained 
as it is in history in the four gospel accounts uh, and in the early church record in Acts. But it is more than implied and assumed and and affirmed later in the book. Uh, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. That, That makes no sense. He's dead. He's in the tomb. But no, he says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So he's obviously not in the tomb anymore. And it's not was Lord, but is Lord. We know that's Paul's belief and one he met, as we see it in the next chapter, Philippians 3, 10 to 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, as Jesus did. As we share in his death, it's a death that ends with and leads to sharing in his resurrection. So, that's the foundation of joy. It is Jesus, eternal God who became man, who was crucified and died for our sins, who was raised from the dead and exalted to the highest place. So how does that relate to us? What does that mean for us? And so we now look, still the joy of knowing Christ, we look at salvation or justification in Jesus. A central purpose for the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus is our salvation. There's an intimate connection there. How can we be saved? How can we be made right with God? So let me take you to the next major section of Philippians. Please turn to Philippians 3, 4 through 11, where God gives us his own testimony. Now, if you don't have a a background on Paul. He was an extremely religious man. He was confident in himself, probably uh, above virtually everyone else in the world in terms of his religiosity, his uh, faithful Jewishness, his self-established righteousness. You don't want to go up against Paul for righteousness as it is defined in the law, you'll lose. He's the winner. But after coming to faith in Christ, all that confidence in himself melted away as he realized that even for himself, what a sham his supposed righteousness was. Look at verse, the middle of verse 4. It's where the sentence starts. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may be that I may gain Christ and be found in him 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Specifically, he has to confess then that it's not good works. It's not religion that counts for anything. It's not by being a Jew or an Englishman or a Swede or a Kenyan or a Peruvian or a German. None of that counts. It's not by being good. It's by faith in Jesus. And this is where we get the the precious truth of justification by faith, made right with God by faith. And this truth, as Paul in other places reminds us over and over again, this predates the law. The the way of salvation predates the law. Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord or believed God and it was counted to him, it was reckoned to him, it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul says that in Romans, in, in Galatians. And in Ephesians, he says the same thing, just with different words. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of your works or your religion or anything else. It's faith in Jesus. Same thing to one of his co-workers, Titus. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we're introduced to the person and work of Jesus, God in the flesh, crucified, resurrected, salvation in Jesus, we're justified, made right with God by faith. But then this letter is just so filled with practical teaching, and and we've already had it over recent weeks, so I'm not going to be able to go there as much as I'd like to, of how we live this out in relationship with one another, this life in Christ, this, this justifying faith, how that's lived out with each other and toward the world. The theological term is sanctification in Jesus. How do we mature in our faith? How do we grow in holiness? How do we have stronger relationships? And, and there's so much here, but, but let me take you to one particular place that goes back to, to Philippians chapter 1. So turn to Philippians 1, 9 to 11. Um, it's a prayer. Uh, pray Bible prayers. Uh, they're so, so rich. Uh, It is my prayer, he's praying for the Philippians, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. With knowledge and discernment, not just lovey feelings, but true love with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And later in the letter, he comes back to teach them about the joy of loving relationships and getting along well with one another. And as he prayed that they would prove approve what is excellent in chapter 1, turn now to chapter 4 and uh, look at what he says here. Chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Oh, don't, don't just race through this and say, well, that's nice and poetic and that looks nice. No, focus on this. Whatever, this is how you're supposed to think, my friends. Whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. doesn't have anything in here about whatever feels good. That's not part of it. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Meditate on them. Dwell on them. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If we're to grow in Christ in genuine holiness of life, a life pleasing to God, a happy life, In God, we must develop the life of the mind and what we think about and meditate on because that's who we become, what we think about, what we meditate on, what we reflect on. Look at your week and how you spend your time and what you focus on and what you meditate on is who you're becoming. That's how you're developing your whole way of thinking by what you're regularly exposed to. Yesterday at Russ Irwin's memorial service, his children testified of common experience of getting up in the morning and seeing their dad in his study, his office, a place designated, Bible open, spending time with God in Scripture and prayer. He was developing his mind. He was purifying his mind. He was clarifying his mind with the things of God. And as he did that, he modeled for his children, but also for many of us who saw the fruit of that discipline and spiritual and moral excellence in life and resulted in a life of joy in Christ. So that's what matters. As you read Philippians, I hope you'll follow that same path to the joy of knowing Christ, who he is, what he did, why he came, how salvation is found in him alone by faith, and then how that works it out in our lives in becoming more more like Christ. Secondly, and we're two-thirds of the way through, we'll take about one-sixth each for these last two points, the joy of serving Christ. Go back to Philippians 1. Paul is writing from prison, probably 10 years after he went to Philippi. We, We can't be absolutely sure about the date, but probably 10 years after he first visited there, ended up in jail there after a beating, he'd he'd maintained relationship with them They have partnered with him financially. That is mentioned in the letter. Uh, They share his heart for spreading the gospel, and so he talks openly to them about it. And so he starts out, this is a very typical, loving, friendly letter, verse 3 to 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. Or if you want to say y'all, that's all right too. My prayer for y'all. Making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They are invested with him. Their hearts are invested with him in the joy of spreading the gospel. And then he adds, verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, that's been one of my go-to verses over the years. That's a great promise, but 
I have to confess to you that I've not done a very good job of keeping it in context. And the context is the work of sharing the gospel. That's what he begun in them that's being carried on to completion. Uh, Faith Missionary Church has a 55-year history now of partnering with missionaries who, like Paul, were partners in the gospel. For example, Russ and Phyllis Irwin in Pakistan, Kim and Jan Cohn in the Congo and in Central Africa, Jeff and Peg Shrum in Mozambique, David and Emily Satola in Italy, Paul and Michelle and Eric and Sarah, who like Paul don't have last names for strategic reasons. Like Paul, some of these places are hard places calling for sacrifice, even at some risk. If we're too risk-aversion, the gospel won't go forth. There's risk involved. Is it worth it? What does Paul say from his prison cell? Look at 12 to 14. We're still in chapter 1. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment, my chains, is for Christ. The the guards... Those overseeing the prison, they knew that this prisoner was different. He had the gospel. He shared it openly. Uh, I like to think of, yeah, Paul was in chains. He was in prison. He couldn't get out. (laughs) But from a secular perspective, from a world's perspective, those poor guards... They were chained to him. They couldn't get away from him. Oh, what glory for them, ultimately, because they heard the gospel. And, and some of them became believers, and it spread through the, through the imperial guard. Most of my brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, my chains, are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. It's good for us to know about the suffering of believers around the world that ought to toughen us up a little bit who really don't know any of that kind of suffering. And at the very end of this chapter, Paul calls this suffering for the gospel a gift. Verse 29, for it's been granted you, a gifted you, you are blessed. It's a favor to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And so the joy of serving Christ, even in persecution, is the pattern and the path of effective evangelism from the beginning of the church. When Peter, there's one passage in Acts, you often have Peter and John arrested or one or two arrested at a time, but here's one case in which it says Peter and the apostles, all or most of them, were arrested together and it's reported in Acts 5, they beat them and they charged them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. So that'll settle it. These guys, they're not going to, going to accept another beating 
are they? But they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And they kept right on. They kept right on talking about Jesus. Paul and Silas had the same experience as they were beaten and jailed when they first took the gospel to Philippi. What do we do that with that? How should that be handled today? The joy of serving Christ, even at great cost of suffering to yourself. Finally and third, the joy of being with Christ in life and in death. This theme of, of Philippians is particularly rich. Uh, chapter 1, let's track it, beginning in verse 20. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, that, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed. Between the two, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. <laughs> He's saying, you'd be happy to die. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. Now remember the, the context. He's in chains in prison. Uh, dying and being with Christ looks very good in this context. But to remain in the flesh... Thus continuing to suffer is more necessary on your account, and convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in you, that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Suffering leads to longing to be with Jesus and away from this hard life, but a willingness to continue on in the suffering for the sake of the gospel and for the encouragement of fellow believers. But Paul always kept the prize before him to depart and be with Christ. Comes back to the same theme in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. He knew where he belonged and he knew where he needed to be for now. But our citizenship is in heaven. From there, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he still keeps the prize in front of him who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Linda and I are in our fourth year of a homeschool experiment, uh, something we never, never anticipated. And uh, this year now we have two grandchildren in it. Preston's a senior, his fourth year. Aiden is a freshman. She used to be called Maddie. That's her middle name. She goes by now. And uh, Linda said uh, at the beginning of the process, she said, this is your thing, Tom. Uh, <laughs> And so she agreed to be the cook and the bus driver for our school. Uh, she delivered him places, she fed him, but it was, it was on me. Well, I got a homeschool co-op to help out. That was certainly has continued to be a wonderful, 
wonderful uh, uh, help, but uh, Linda kind of got pulled into it. Um, he needed some help in chemistry, and this year she is an aide for help for a tutor for president in physics, but also immersed in teaching algebra and biology. Uh, she's the math science person. I'm not at all. Meanwhile, I have joined both of our students in a full-scale immersion into the works of Homer. The Iliad, which I had never read until this fall. The Odyssey, which I'm halfway through right now. Uh, much more fun to read than the Iliad. But here's the recounting of the long Trojan War in the Iliad. Uh, some really R-rated violence. Incredible. And then the agonizing and equally long return of Odysseus from the Trojan War to his home in Ithaca in the Odyssey. Now, last Sunday, I was sitting right over here with uh, Aidan. Uh, we were singing in the first service, I, I forget the name of the hymn, but it was a hymn about the storms of life and the value of Christ. And, and, and I've got the Odyssey in my background, in my mind. And I leaned over to her and I said, Think how different it would have been for Odysseus if he had had a biblical worldview uh, with trust in God, the one true, loving, just God, instead of being held hostage to the whims of Zeus and Poseidon. Now this week, we're just at the halfway point, and we have just been in book 11 with Odysseus to Hades. What a trip the abode of the dead, where Odysseus visits with the ghost of his mother but can't hug her, a great pain to him. He visits the Achaean heroes of the past, angry and proud Achilles, and then Agamemnon who made it home only to be murdered by his wife. But whether hero or coward, one is held hostage to the gods who can never be satisfied. And if you try to play up to one and please that particular god, you offend another who will take vengeance on you. And then there's always fate. And you can't get away from fate. Ultimately then, Hades beckons. And Hades always wins. So Odysseus visits Hades. He recounts his troubles in trying to get back home to Ithaca. I've never yet been able to get near the Achaean island nor to set foot in my own country, but have been in trouble all the time. And then he says, he's talking to Achilles. He's complaining about his hard life to Achilles in Hades. As for you, Achilles... No one has ever yet so fortunate as you've been, nor ever will be, for you were adored by all of us Argives as long as you were alive. And now that you're here in Hades, you're a great prince among the dead. Do not therefore take it so much to heart, even if you are dead. How's that for a sermon text? How's that for an effort to encourage a brother? Yes, you're dead, but look how famous you are. I mean, 2,600, 2,800 years, however long it's been, we're still talking about him. 
What a glorious thing he has. Achilles brings reality to the conversation as he responds to Odysseus. Say not a word in death's favor. I would rather be a paid servant in a poor man's house and above ground than king of kings among the dead. Goodbye to Homer. Give me Paul. To live is Christ, to die is gain. For Achilles, to live is fame. To be dead is not gain, but utter despair. There's no hope, no joy. It was to this Greek world of gods and goddesses that Paul took the gospel to the Philippians, giving hope and joy in Jesus Christ, and that gospel eventually reached us. All of us, if you go back far enough, our ancestors were believers in all kinds of gods, captive to the gods. But as the gospel comes, as Paul took the gospel of joy to the Greek world, so now we take the gospel of joy to our confused and self-worshipping secular world, trying to create our own identities to reinvent ourselves, ending up in the same Hades kind of despair. We must bring the joy of the gospel, the truth, to this despairing world as Paul brought it to the despairing Greek world of gods and goddesses. And so what joy there is in knowing Christ and serving Christ and facing the tests of life and inevitability, inevitably the, the, the uh, inevitability of death with the joy of Christ in us and before us. Perhaps my favorite quote, or at least in the top four or five outside of the Bible, is from the confessions of St. Augustine who said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And my prayer is that this epistle, this letter called Philippians, will encourage you to embrace the joy of knowing Christ, to embrace the joy of serving Christ, and the joy of Christ in life. And as you face the reality of death, to live as Christ to die is gain. That's Philippians. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are such a giver of gifts. The Lord Jesus himself, of course, is, is by far in a way the greater, but to communicate the, 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 the reality of Jesus and his provision and his love and his transforming power in this letter to the Philippians and and we get to have copies of it, how, how glorious that is. Thank you for these weeks of going through this book and, and I, this letter. And I, I pray that, that you'll not let us release it, that we will soak in it, that we will let our minds grow and develop and mature and proper passions come out of it for our good and your glory and the good of our ministry to this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.